here we are again at Altered Mobility for another episode of our podcast. And today, a really neat uh, topic. We have Blaise Pascal and the first modern public transportation system. And we are going to go way deep here today into Mr. Pascal, his friend, and that system. Okay, let's get started with our snapshot in equity. Okay, so since we're going to be looking at 1662, at some point, the year of the first the first public transit system was launched, uh, we're going to look at that year in equity. And it was the year in the British colony of the Commonwealth. I guess it was the British colony of Virginia. I think it became a Commonwealth after the revolution. Anyway, um, and their legislature in Virginia, called the House of Burgesses, passed a law that year that any child born to an enslaved woman would also be enslaved. Let that sink in for a moment. This law represented a significant departure from English common law, uh, in which the child's uh, status would flow from the father. Now suddenly you have fathers who don't have to take responsibility in the same way. Uh, their children don't have their noble status, if that's involved at all. Uh, you have things like primogeniture, remember, that existed at the time. And so essentially this, this Virginia law rewards uh rape or undue persuasion of female enslaved persons, it makes uh, paternity legally irrelevant. As long as the woman is enslaved, the child is enslaved. So it doesn't matter who the father is. Um, and other colonies soon thereafter impose similar laws. And now to the first omnibus and Blaise Pascal. Yes, the mathematician, physicist, and religious philosopher. Okay. So, at, at Altered Mobility, we're, we're looking at Blaze and his friend who created this first modern uh, network. This is a tale of two odd, unusual souls, their friendship, and their brilliant transportation idea. First the biographies, and then on to the transit system. And we'll spend a lot of this episode on Pascal himself. Obviously, a lot is written about him. Uh, a little bit on his partner, in this uh, this venture, and then we'll dive into that early fixed route system uh, using horse-drawn omnibuses, and it is a system that did outlive its creator. By way of introduction, uh, let me just say that it's impossible to know the real. Pascal truly know him because following his early death at age 39, uh, there was close by those close to him a careful editing, a curating, shall we say, of his writings that um, that perhaps deleted for history anything that was negative that wasn't quite in keeping with his I don't know almost saint life like image. Uh, he had at that point one surviving sister, a very close friend, uh, the one involved in the public transit system, and a religious associate who went through his writings. Um, 
And they were all adherents of this one very demanding Catholic sect with which Pascal and his family and friend had att- uh, to which they had attached themselves. More on that later. Uh, Pascal was brilliant. No question he contributed to the fields of mathematics, probability, and physics. He was an inventor ahead of his time, uh, creating an early calculator, and later in life a religious man devoted to Christ and to this uh, particular sect of Catholicism. He was also sick on and off really his entire life in discomfort and pain. And... um, and though he was close to his sisters and, and these two friends, um, and his sisters followed him into this religious life, he never had an intimate physical relationship, never had sex, I, I think we're very safe in saying, or a marriage. Um, he was very well-educated, and one might say high up in the middle class, although he lacked uh, nobility and wealth, um, which was likely very evident to him uh, because of the people he socialized with were rather above him. Okay. So a little bit uh, more in depth on his early life and his background. His father, Etienne, was the eldest son of a mother who was on the lowest rung of the nobility, so very much a step up for Pascal's grandfather, who was an administrator. They lived in what is now Clermont-Ferrand, France. And please excuse everything that I mispronounced that's in French today. Etienne was well-educated in Paris, and he married up. He married the daughter of a prosperous merchant who was, as I said, on this lowest rung of the nobility, not mobility. (laughs) Uh, Blaise was born in 1623, three years after his older sister, Gilbert, and a younger sister, Jacqueline, was born three years later. At the age of one, he's struck by this mysterious illness. Nothing is helping. He, he was sluggish. His abdomen was puffed up and hardened. He screamed a lot. He screamed particularly when his parents were together or held hands or when he saw water. Um, we don't know how much of this is edited, you know, or kind of changes a little bit in later retelling, but he was very, very sick. And this lasted for over a year, came close to dying. And the illness was later attributed by a local woman to a spell cast um, when Etienne had ruled against her. And she confessed to this, and she transferred the spell to a cat after she had suggested that the spell be transferred to a horse because, of course, this animal would then be kind of sacrificed, and the cat was thrown out to a window from its death. And I'm going to read a little bit because it really shows how uh, dire the situation uh, was. Okay, so Etienne comes back home, and and most of this I'm quoting from the biography by Morris Bishop. He comes home from the courts at noon, discovered the house in tears, and heard the cry that his son was dead. And so he found the child to all outward look as dead. Leaving the room grief-stricken, he met the hag, and that's, quote, I would never use that word, upon the doorstep, and in his sudden fury, he strikes her down. 
Not offended, she picked herself up and explained that the bewitched boy would continue in his death-like state until midnight and would then come to himself. Uh, Monsieur Pascal gave orders that the body should not be sewn in its shroud, although the pulse was still and all the warmth of life departing. And continuing my quoting here, between midnight and one o'clock, the child began to yawn. The watching parents seized him, chafed him, gave him sugared wine to drink. The nurse presented her breast to him, and he took it without opening his eyes. Not until six in the morning did he come to consciousness, and gradually the old perverse terrors disappeared, and one day the father, returning from Mass, found the boy in his mother's arms, pouring water from one glass to another. So you can imagine how traumatic that was for his parents and for him. I mean, this this lasts for quite a while. Over a year. Uh, so in 1626, we, we have his uh, sister being born and his mother passed away. His older sister was six years old and she soon becomes basically the mom of the family. And I'm sipping my favorite coffee, Zeke's. A shout out to Zeke's. Love your stuff. Um, they're not advertising here. I'm just my own little shout out. Um, the, so, so the mom passes away, the father, uh, devotes himself to the children, the older sister becomes kind of this, this mother hen, and the father never, uh, never remarried. Sometime in 1630 or 31, when Blaise is seven, the family moved to Paris. The father had sold his position, and the family, the plan was for the family to live on dividends from government bonds. Now, in case you think this is so strange, the father, you know, buying and selling this position, think of what we do today, uh, where people pay to uh, have a training program or go get a master's degree and pay for that. And basically, if you know a lot of master's programs now, a lot of them, um, most of the time, or at least a substantial amount of time, is spent in internships that you're basically paying for through the master's degree program. So I'm not sure we can, you know, look askance necessarily at this when we have our own versions of this kind of um, situation. So his father leaves work and they move to Paris and the father homeschools the children and uh, Blaise receives an excellent education, an unusual education and from a single parent, albeit one with household help and who was himself a mathematician and who had prominent connections in that world. Uh, by age 13, Blaise is a mathematics prodigy, and his younger sister was the toast of the court, both before and after she got smallpox, although it did, I wouldn't say ruin, it doesn't seem to have ruined her looks, but she was no longer this great, great beauty. And I'm, I'm not going into complete detail about that relationship and about her, because there's a lot written in his biography and otherwise uh, about her kind of high-level connections. Um, she was quite the charmer, I guess. Um, and, and his biographer talks a lot about Blaze's competitiveness with his younger sister, but that's not really in other sources. It's quite difficult to know how much of that was there. But they did have a very close relationship 
relationship. Um, and Toast.com did a nice synopsis of uh, Blaze's education. Etienne would not let Blaze learn mathematics at an early age. The beginning of his education was geared toward languages such as Latin and Greek. However, the fact that mathematics was a forbidden topic made the subject even more interesting to Blaze. At age 12, he began to teach himself geometry, even working out that the sum of a triangle's angles is equal to two right angles. I've got to tell you, I don't think I would have done this on my own, and I was a decent math student, but obviously he's way ahead. Upon seeing this, his father gave him Euclid's elements, and I find that incredibly interesting. You know, here is a kid with a proclivity towards something, in a somewhat affluent home, and his father knows enough to know what to give him. You know, isn't that like a perfect situation? Uh, so that by 16, Blaze writes a, a short mathematics treatise, an essay on conics, which was so advanced that Descartes himself believed that Etienne had written it instead of this teenager. And indeed, it's at a mathematics gathering where his father had taken uh, this teenager um, that Blaze presents his mystical hexagram theorem. And the hexagram conic-related theorem is still called Pascal's theorem. So quite the accomplishment for a 16-year-old. I'm going to digress and go kind of off off our chronology here to talk um, a little bit about Blaze's lifelong illnesses and pain um, because it was such an influence throughout his life, and I think it's really hard to think of who he was divorced from whatever disability or, or pain he had throughout his life. Uh, one writer wrote, uh, a rather long piece about how it was likely celiac disease which um, affected Pascal, and that's, of course, uh, a sensitivity, more than a sensitivity, uh, a disease that gets worse over time with uh, eating of any wheat-related, gluten-related products, which, of course, they didn't know about. Um, and he talks about the progression of the disease, including epilepsy and migraines. And this is all in the show notes, by the way. Uh, there's websites that talk about stomach cancer, but they seem to mention that um, almost copying from one another, not really talking about why it's believed that he had, he had stomach cancer. There's mentions of perhaps he had a subdural hematoma later in his life caused by a carriage crash. More on that later. Um, another, uh, you know, more detailed analysis talks about, uh, you know, speculating that Pascal suffered from a combination of migraine, irritable bowel syndrome, and fibromyalgia, a complex of illnesses that are often found together and frequently occur in combination with symptoms that he had, symptoms of anxiety, depression, and emotional distress. It's also possible that, that Pascal was on the autism spectrum. He always had problems in terms of social interaction and extreme aversion to physical contact. But we don't know. We're really speculating. Um, I will read you a little paragraph, uh, a little bit from, from his biography about his pain, since it was so significant. 
And after my delicious sip of coffee, I will find that now. So I have various bookmarks in this book uh, to read a little bit from now and then during our time together here on the podcast. Okay. Uh, Okay, so when he's in his 20s, he has a crisis, and uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that now in terms of his pain and treatments. Bleedings, purgings, and the natural course of his inward ills left him often exhausted, a ready victim to pain. This was his state when Descartes visited him in September 1647. The following year, I'm not talking days or a week, the following year saw no improvement. He complains in January that he has few hours of leisure and health together. From April to September, he was prostrated, unable to write. And continuing the quote a little lower on the same page, when one is, he writes, when one is well, one wonders how one could bear being ill. When one is ill, one takes medicine gaily. The illness persuades us thereto. One has no more the passions and the desires for diversions and promenades which health inspired and which are incompatible with the sickness's requirements. Nature gives them passions and desires conformant to our state. So this really shows you uh, the, the suffering involved in the very long periods when uh, this would go on. When Blaise is about 15 or 16, the government defaulted on its bonds and Etienne's uh, net worth plummeted. He was forced to return to work and he got a position through his connections as a tax collector in Rouen, where he built a reputation for great fairness. Despite, you can imagine, being a tax collector, you're never popular, but since he was fair, I guess he wasn't taking bribes either. Um, He did develop a good reputation. And it's here, uh, several years later, when Blaise is about 23, that Etienne broke his hip. And get this for healthcare, two bone setters, uh, not doctors, it's interesting. Uh, these bone setters moved in for a few months. They, I guess they checking his uh, condition, and um, they had the money to support these two people. And the bone setters were themselves followers of this very strict Catholic sect. And they, I'll, I'll put this word in quotes, converted the entire family. Um, at 19, uh, Blaze, this is after uh, some other stuff. I'm trying not to go into too much detail here. Blaze involved, invented an early calculating machine, not quite the adding machine, more than that, but not quite a calculator. Um, and he started to market the machine about three years later, so he's about 22 at this point. Unfortunately, the machine was very expensive to purchase or to repair, and it was probably quite the foreign concept to even use a machine for this rather than to use uh, some kind of labor. Labor, you know, staff help was cheap enough, and the machine didn't make self uh, sense economically. If, if any of you remember um, sort of the advent of computers, the personal computer, there were a lot of people who resisted anything like that. Um, why do I need this? Somebody else can do it. 
you know, this isn't going to last, all that, all that kind of thing. Um, this was evident even more so in his time. And in later years, he did try again to, to share the machine, sending it to various people and selling it, but he never made headway. And by the way, I'll, I'll digress for a moment to say that uh, Pascal wasn't the first one to uh, invent this type of machine. And, and uh, want, to his credit, I, I guess you could say... Um, not only his machine, but others were not successfully marketed for a little over 200 years. Uh, yeah, for another 200 years. Um, and at that point, there was improved reliability. And this is according to Wikipedia. This is all in our show notes. Um at around this time, you know, after this conversion of the family, and I think this shows, and I'll, I'll share other things, which also show that, that this guy is, is not at all a saint, despite uh, his increasing religiosity, can I say, even of later years. But, but when he's a young man, um, his self-centeredness, his selfishness and narrowness, I, I would say even a miserliness of character come through. Um, Blaze and and a few friends, he's really the ringleader in this, um, kind of hound this priest who is found guilty of some kind of heresy, some kind of doctrinal heresy. And they're really relentless in, in um, pushing the authorities not to be lenient with this guy, not to just move his position. I mean, kind of what happened in the sex abuse scandal with priests, this happened in other ways when they're found guilty of much different kinds of uh, nonconformity, doctrinal uh, misbehavior, if you will. There, Sometimes the church authorities would, would treat them laxly and just transfer them, and Blaze and these others uh, kept complaining that the punishment didn't fit the crime, that this is a serious issue. Um, and after finally a few rounds of the church trying to both placate Pascal and, and not ruin this man's life, um, they find a position, but by this time the whole matter is very well known, and basically the guy can't go out except uh when he's protected by guards and he has to leave this position. And Blaze never apologizes for this, despite, you know, sort of adopting similar outlook as the priest. Um, after this, after his early 20s, his sister becomes very deeply religious, reclusive. Um, she wants to become a nun, but the father... Uh, I guess you could say forbids this, dissuades her from this, at least temporarily. Um, when the father passes away a few years later, she enters a convent in keeping with this particular sect of Catholicism, which is somewhat close to Calvinism. And it does, um, some of his writings, Pascal's later writings, actually are, I wouldn't say adopted, but used employed by, by Calvinists. It's very strict as far as judging human behavior, and there's a whole rabbit hole you can go down about uh, Pascal and how he treats his sister and um, his his need, his financial needs. I mean, it takes something for her to go into this convent because uh, basically it requires money. She goes at first without money, and then he ends up capitulating. Um, it's kind of an embarrassment for the family for her to go in unsupported into this convent. His older sister does marry and has two kids who also enter into this whole sect. 
In terms of Pascal's contributions um, to math and science, and I'll do this now because of the chronology and get back to religion a little bit later because of he becomes deeply religious in his last few years. In terms of science, he, he writes a treatise on the hydraulic press. He's the first to recognize its practical applications, although he didn't invent such a machine. Um, and his explanation of the hydraulic press is known as Pascal's Law. And I'll read you a little bit about that. Let me find that page. Um... More important to scientific thought than the practical device was the clear elucidation of that law, now known as Pascal's law, and I'm quoting, that pressure applied to the surface of a liquid is transmitted equally and undiminished to all other parts of the liquid's surface, acting with the same force on all equal surfaces in a direction at right angles to them. And I will not go further. You can read that stuff on your own. He did work on vacuums, practical experiments, where he involved his brother-in-law in an elaborate experiment because he wasn't well enough to do the running around required, where somebody had to be at the top of a mountain, someone at the bottom, in order to test a hypothesis about vacuums. I believe it was just his brother-in-law did the testing um, he did work on weather prediction, uh, very important contributions in terms of the scientific method, and I'll read you a little bit about that because I found that interesting. If I can find it. Um, he talks about, he distinguishes between kind of what we would call today the social sciences and the hard sciences. Um, and uh, so he talks about how we can, we, the, the social sciences, we can look to the agents, right, and give them more credence. But with the hard scientists, um, Um, it is quite otherwise with those matters which are subject to the senses or the reasoning process. Authority, or as I would say, to digress history, right, previous thought, is useless. Reason alone has the right to judge of them. Thus, geometry, arithmetic, music, physics, medicine, architecture, and all the sciences which are subject to experiment and reasoning must be ever augmented to become perfect. The ancients found them only outlined by their predecessors, and we shall leave them to our successors in a more perfect state than we received them. This elucid the elucidation, and I'm quoting the biographers now quoting from Pascal, the elucidation of this difference should make us pity the blindness of those who appeal to authority alone as proof in physical matters rather than to reasoning or experiment. Likewise, we should feel horror for the guile of others who employ reasoning alone in theology instead of the authority of the scriptures and the fathers. And he's really interested in both and distinguishing uh, both. In 1654, he begins a correspondence with Fermat, uh, another mathematician, a very famous mathematician. 
and they have a correspondence that discusses what later becomes probability theory. They're musing uh, conversations in writing, if you will, um, focus on the quandary of a gambling game that is interrupted midway and how to fairly divide the pot. Uh, Blaze didn't end this relationship when he was uh, he entered his kind of more religious years. Indeed, they were still writing to one another in 1660, with Blaise pondering the meaning of his work in geometry and calling it a trade like any other. And now we'll go to uh, more into his uh, religious uh, beliefs and life, since this was so central to him. And in his later years, and uh, that's when this public transit idea takes off. So, okay, so late uh, one winter night in late 1654, he has this two-hour revelation, conversion. Um, Some sources report, say that, that before this, about a month before, he was involved in a nearly fatal carriage crash, while other biographers do not even mention this incident. Uh, Another rabbit hole to go down is the... Uh, you know what what happens on this night according to his his biographer however he takes a different uh attitude and says that this this night was the culmination of a slow building up in the months preceding of this religious awakening um and he doesn't mention the the crash others dispute whether the crash happened he, you're free to take hours of your own time to look into that one. But there's no dispute that on this night he has this religious um, event occurring in his mind, and he writes down on a parchment a document of the experience. This document, this parchment, is found uh, sewn into a a jacket of his when he's died. After he's died, it seems that he had always carried it around secretly in those years. And that would be uh, eight years. Um, he also, he, let me quote his, his biographer uh, for a tight description at this point on this sect and his, his beliefs, because now he's going, he's going deep, right? He's going deep into being religious. Um, Jansenism, which it's called, resembles Calvinism in their common insistent on a single predestined efficacious grace. Uh, they, they believe free will is an illusion of our superficial minds. Human nature includes all our inheritance of evil. And, and he does go into Adam's fall plunged all men into self-love or sin. In the state of sin, all men's acts are sinful and evil in God's sight. God is pleased, but seldom an evil... Um, yeah, and evil. Most of men's acts are evils in God's sight. Um, the rare few people are chosen from all eternity to receive the blinding gift of, uh, of reward, and they are predestined for grace. For to deny predestination is to allege that God is um, ignorant of the future, hence imperfect. Um 
to be guilty is to have a substance from which guilty acts emerge. And from this dreadful responsibility, there is no escape save by divine grace, exceeding all our deserts. Um, and let me read you a little more. They, they talk a little bit about how this, this, uh, this theology differs from Calvinism in that Calvinism says that grace is irrevocable, whereas Jansenism says that it is revocable, that God, in his inscrutable wisdom, may withdraw grace from the judge, the just, without reference to man's conduct or merit. So we have a, well, there's not a lot of justice here, let's put it that way. Um, and I'm going to read you just a little bit more. Um, the Jansenists were primarily speculative theologians, not mystics, not practical directors of sold souls. They're concerned only with determining true doctrine. They refused to consider its practical effects. The ambition of their belief abjured all halfway measures, demanded excess, the singular, the dramatic. They preferred that truth should be unreasonable, that the assumption of faith should be an act of heroism. They accepted with a certain smugness the cruel consequences of their truth. Infant damnation, for example, and that's me saying for example. Um, the, uh, their purpose was to enrich the spiritual life. They were concerned with the quality and not the quantity of converted souls. So you can see there's a certain... There's a certain harshness there, and there's a certain kind of person who is attracted to that, to being as perfect as they can be, uh, being critical of others. Um, from this point on, about this point, um, Blaze attaches himself somewhat to his sister's convent and to a particular church and um, leadership of that church. Um, this 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 convent... Um, has voluntary inmates as well who didn't completely uh, move there. Uh, it also operated uh, a progressive school. It attracted a lot of wealthy and noble adherents. Um, and the sect and the convent were later condemned by the, the official church and shut down. And I'll go a little bit into that, but not too much. That's another one where you can really go down a real rabbit hole. The official church is much more um, lenient, shall we say, to the wealthy. This is what makes it somewhat unpopular. This is probably why the sect gained adherence. It's a lot more fair overall. On the other hand, the church was more understanding of human nature and uh, people not being perfect. Um, in 1656, uh, so Pascal is now in his 30s, he began writing a series of public letters about an ongoing controversy with this sect uh, that he's attached to, and the condemnation of one of the leaders of this sect, which was tantamount to an accusation of, of heresy. These letters uh, enjoyed great popularity, so evidently Pascal was quite the writer, and he played on the ideas of the church's leadership in France being in league with the aristocracy and being unfair, and I'll just uh, read you a little bit about that. Let me get the page. 
His battle with the Jesuits, they're the leading sect, worked a change in his mind. He was no longer the penitent. He was the militant Christian, fighting what seemed to him the forces of evil. Without this this war, he might well have continued in the path of mystic contemplation and self-abnegation. Instead, he rediscovered his old, his old intellectual pride and a new sense of power over men's minds. He liked to quote with approval the words of the sage, Be not humble in thy wisdom. Perhaps he also quoted the words of his confessor, uh, a particular priest, and I'm quoting, I am ready to abase myself in all the rest, but in essential matters, I am well resolved to be inflexible and obstinate, if you will, and singular and superb, exclamation mark, end of quote. Um, there's also an instance around this time uh, that Blaise perceives as a miracle and as a sign involving the cure of uh, an eye condition uh, that his niece uh, suffers from. And though later medical science can explain why the sudden cure, he saw it as a sign from God that his sect and his particular church were favored, and this spurred him to remain engaged and active in this um, writing project. And this was a battle, I, I will say, that his sect would ultimately lose. Um, at the school, at the school uh, connected with this convent, he instituted a method of uh, reading learning, a phonics of learning vowels and consonants at words that remained um, quite effective and popular. So you should know he's, he's quite the Renaissance man, kind of in his own way. Um, and he spent the last couple of his year uh, of his years suffering medically, and he passes away at a young age, at age thirty-nine. Um, and he's not quite a likable guy. And I find that you know we're going to find that throughout in, in these episodes that just because someone does something really uh, incredible in some way, um, or you know, really good for the world or a community or a city or whatever, doesn't mean they are themselves um, easy to be around or a good person to be around. Um, I talked uh, earlier about that heresy episode. Um, You know, he's very miserly about uh, supporting his his sister, although that can be taken either way. It leaves him without a caretaker and without a person in the house. so there's that. I think that one can be taken either way. Um, but but this, this next one, I think, really shows his true side. First of all, this is something that happens when after this, this supposed religious conversion, when he's supposedly so strict um, about his religious practice and belief. Um, so it really uh, demonstrates a negative, you know, really paints a picture, if you will, of the negative side of his character. He stages a a mathematical contest with prize money, not his own, of course. And um, there are six problems that have to be solved within a very short time frame. And he means to win the prize money despite staging the contest. So a little conflict of interest there. The timing involved is very short so that it effectively leaves out anyone from another 
country. And remember, we're talking about snail mail that takes a long time. We're not talking about modern postal systems. So it, it effectively leaves out some eminent foreigners who might be able to win the contest. He learns during the time after, I think after he already begins to stage the contest, the four out of the six problems have already been solved by others. Um, I won't go into detail, but he kind of rigs things even further so that um, he will win. That's after he discovers that some of the problems have already been solved. And I, I do have to say, history has not judged him well on this, although he does have a lot of uh, fans, shall we say. This was in 1658, so this is four years after, the, you know, the religious conversion and all that, and um, it's kind of interesting how he rationalizes this, and I think part of this is he really is um, kind of desperate for money. He really um, does go through all of his money. So he dies at this early age in 1662, and now... So I'm jumping in here just to say that after I recorded the episode, and it came out super, super long, I decided to just split it into two episodes. So we're ending here, and we're going to come back in two weeks with the next episode that will start with Pascal's partner in transit, so to speak. And um, I wish you a great two weeks. I hope you have wonderful coffee, wonderful weather, wonderful love, lots of good times. And see you soon.
Oh! <laughs>